Our scripture readings today are excerpts from Acts chapter 7. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Amen. You know, one of the most amazing things that you come face to face with in the book of Acts is just the sheer courage of the early Christians. And of course, that's what we're in part looking at, the power of Jesus through his people in the book of Acts. And today we're looking at the courage and really the power of Jesus through the life of this first martyr of the Christian faith, a man named Stephen. And of course, if you were here last week, you met Stephen as one of the early deacons, as one of the first key servants in the church. We saw that he served widows. He took care of the poor extensively. But today we see that Stephen has been sort of sleeping on us. He's been hiding another superpower he has besides serving. We see that Stephen is also an amazing speaker. He's an amazing preacher, and if not the greatest preacher in the first days of the church. Because here in Acts 7, we have recorded the longest single sermon that anybody gives in all the book of Acts. And uh, we just read a brief portion of it, by the way, just a fraction, and you're welcome for that. We would have been here for a while, but Stephen here, before he's done, does something that literally changes the course of human history. 
Before he's done, he does something so revolutionary, it's actually affected your life, my life today. What, is, what does he do here, I want to ask, that's so revolutionary, countercultural? Well, Stephen, as we're going to see, he holds together three things that almost no one can. Maybe we can do one or two, but not three. Stephen holds together, as we're going to see, his, his head, his heart, and his life. Let's see this through. Number one, how he critiques his culture through how he reveals a pattern and ultimately through how he shows his quality. Let's begin here number one and see how Stephen critiques his culture uh, here in Acts 7. He's stirring up. He has stirred up this hornet's nest of controversy. He's responding to something in particular. Let's see. Verse 13, it says, they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. So the Jewish Sanhedrin, sort of the Congress, the court of the day, does not like the early Christian activity and brings these charges against Stephen and says, Stephen is being charged with speaking against those two things, against the Jewish temple and the Jewish law. Those two things were the organizing principles of Jewish culture. And Jewish culture, those were the things that made them unique on the planet, in the world, among the world nations. Why? Well, because the temple was the place in their minds that the presence of God came. And the law was the way they distinguished themselves morally from the other pagan nations. So to be charged with speaking against these things is a big deal, and a guilty charge would carry the death penalty. And the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And what does Stephen say? Well, here's his defense. To the charge that the temple is unimportant, Stephen says, look, y'all. <laughs> well, he didn't really say y'all. I, I, I put that part in. He says, look, it's not that the temple's not a great place. It is. It's just that God, if you will remember, God has never been confined to a temple. Amen. Yeah. He starts off by referencing Abraham to prove his point. He says, you guys, you guys remember Abraham, right? Like the founder of our faith guy. Where did Abraham meet God? He said, in the middle of nowhere. He said, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. Mesopotamia, a place full of idols. He's saying God can meet anyone, anywhere. And in the second charge about the law, Stephen asked him, he said, you think you're special morally because you have the law? He says, you think having the Ten Commandments makes you a special people? He said, no, it's not having the Ten Commandments that makes you special. It's obeying the Ten Commandments that makes you special. But in case you've forgotten your own history, you have never actually obeyed the Ten Commandments. You know, do you remember what happened when your ancestors, when our ancestors got the Ten Commandments? He said they obeyed God from the get-go with the whole golden calf thing, right? And then later in the promised land, when they carried the ark and the Ten Commandments in, they didn't obey the commandments there either. He's saying here, God, number one, doesn't live in a house made by hands. And number two, you have never obeyed the Ten Commandments. 
And because of those two facts, that's his defense, in the end, Stephen says, that's why the righteous one had to come. He's saying Jesus was, number one, God's true temple in human form. And number two, he did what you could never do. He obeyed the commandments perfectly. Jesus was perfectly righteous. He was the ultimate prophet. And you guys all killed him, breaking the commandment about murder, by the way, and proved yourself, therefore, to be just like your ancestors who killed the prophets before Jesus. And of course, that was a highly unpopular thing to say. And the Sanhedrin here goes nuts. Now, that's his critique. Stephen's using the gospel to critique two forms of thought prevalent in his culture. Two ways of thought around which people formed their identities and built their lives. In a case, what he's saying here doesn't seem too radical to you. I want to turn for a, a few moments here, Stephen's critique on us as well, the same critique, because I think what he's getting at here is just as relevant for us and maybe as much or more offensive in our culture today. Say, how so? Well, Stephen's argument critiques us, our culture, in two ways. First, Stephen's argument critiques our modern secular culture today. Because modern secular culture insists that any and every way to God is just fine. All ways to God are acceptable. And so in the face of that, Stephen here is saying, no, no, the only way to God is through Jesus. All faiths are not equal, he's saying. God's true temple, the true way he meets with anyone is through his son Jesus. Stephen's saying, Jesus is superior to every form of faith in every culture. Now, modern people, many modern people react to that and they say, well, that's just fundamentalism. To which I would say, yes, it is. It is actually fundamentalism, but hang on, Because everybody is, at their core, a kind of fundamentalist in one way or the other. Because everyone has a fundamental belief about how life and faith, religion, and culture work. Modern secular culture says all faiths are equally valid. But here's why that's a kind of religious fundamentalism. Because our modern secular culture doesn't just stop there. It says, no, truth claims, exclusive truth claims, aren't just bad They're wrong, right? They're wrong, and those who make them are bad and deserve shame heaped upon them. Why do they do this? Well, it's because they're operating from a place of fundamentalism as well. Jamie Foxx, the actor and comedian, he noted the same thing. He says there's an incredible irony our modern culture has when it comes to anybody trying to critique anything about morality, about right and wrong. He said this, he said, don't kill the comedian, He said, there's a lot of people out there doing really bad things, and every time a comedian says anything, says something about peanuts, people say, you're peanut shaming. A comedian says something about dolphins, people say, oh man, you're a dolphin shamer. What's he doing? The irony he's pointing out is that the open-minded secular liberalists can be as arrogant and as shaming a group as those they decry. Why? Because they have a fundamental at their core as well about how to think about religion. They think we're right, they're wrong, that group deserves to be shamed. Now the question then isn't, will I be a fundamentalist? The question is, which fundamental will lead me to become the most loving towards whom those with whom I disagree? 
So one of the ironies of, the, of history is that the Greco-Roman world in that day, which prized itself on being this inclusive society across the board, actually executed Christians by the thousands and tried to wipe them out. But by contrast, the most exclusive group, the Christians with the most exclusive truth claims, were actually the most inclusive group the world had ever seen. The Christians mixed rich and poor, which the Greeks and Romans didn't do, and they mixed their races, which the Jews didn't do. Why would this be? Well, because it all depends on what your fundamental is. When you have at the heart of your faith, not a, not a temple like the Jews had, but a person who comes near and who mixes with everyone, rich and poor, every ethnicity, and who literally dies for his enemies, praying for them as he does so, that fundamental cannot help but change you and drive your behavior in a certain way. But second, Stephen's critique here also challenges traditional conservative culture as well. Traditional conservative culture prizes itself on goodness, on morality, upholding the standard, and keeping the rules. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, the late atheist author of God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, argues in this chapter, he says, this chapter's called Religion Kills. I wonder what he means there. Uh, he says that... Christopher, could you be more clear? You know, uh, he says religion is not unlike racism. One version of it inspires and provokes the other. Religion has been an enormous multiplier, he says, of tribal suspicion and hatred. Now, what do you think about that? Well, I think his critique is right. I think his critique is fair. Because after all, what creates the slippery slope? towards judgmentalism in the human heart. It's believing you have the truth and you are better than others. But think about it. What's Stephen critiquing here? Oh, it's the same thing Hitchens does. He's critiquing the fact that one group, the Jews, believed they had the truth and were therefore better, more special, more favored than the nations around them. So what's the heart of his critique to him? He said, oh, you know, we as Jewish people, he said, we've always had the law. We've maybe had a better law, but we've never actually obeyed it. We've never obeyed the commandments, and therefore we're not better than anyone else. We actually need rescue from the law, and that's why Jesus came. What does this mean? It means that the message of Christianity is that salvation can only come by grace, by radical grace, unmerited favor, radical grace. The only righteous one he's saying is Jesus. He's the only one who's kept the commandments and who loved the Lord is God. And so Stephen is saying to all the people who think they're good, all the ones who look down their noses at secular culture and all its permissiveness and all its real immorality, he's saying to all the, all the elder brothers right, who look down their noses at all the prodigal sons, he's saying all you good people, are really moral failures. Because while their sin, yeah, it's lust and perversion, yours is pride and arrogance, and don't forget, it was you good people who put to death Jesus, the Son of God. What's he saying? He's saying that without a person's heart being changed by radical grace, religious people, like atheist Hitchens said, religious people can poison everything. And when Christopher Hitchens... And Stephen the deacon agree on something? I think that's worth listening to. 
And until we today, until we can stop looking down our nose at either all the wicked, liberal, immoral people out there or all the, the racist, greedy, conservative people, all the stereotypes and say, not them, but I am wrong with the world. You and I, we're still sitting as a part of the Sanhedrin, sitting under Stephen's critique. Now, Stephen's got the guts here to allow his faith to critique both sides of his culture, both secular and conservative, do we? Do we? If you do, you prove that Jesus has actually freed you from being a slave to your own culture. And that we see in Stephen's life, Jesus had freed him from his upbringing, from his own background. You say, well, all right, I'd like me some of that, maybe. What can get me out of one of these either-or places? What can get anyone out of the place of judgment towards another group? Hmm? Well, there's a curious thing I want to show you I think can, can help move your heart out of that. There's this amazing insight that Stephen goes on to give that shows us how to be free to love like Jesus does. It's number two. Stephen also doesn't just critique his culture. He reveals a pattern here in the Bible. Along the way, in his sermon, there's this amazing pattern. He begins to sort of unload onto the Sanhedrin, and he points this pattern out first in the life of the patriarch Joseph. And he says, if you guys will remember, God raised up Joseph to do what? To be a deliverer for his family. But what did his family do to him? They rejected him. They sold him into slavery. And he goes on to point out what happened to Moses. He says all through Moses' life, all through his career, the same thing kept happening. His own people rejected him. Look, he said Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. And Stephen says it kept happening. Look, Moses led him out of Egypt. He said perform wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea. He said the Jew, he said we got miracles for 40 years. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, he says, they rejected him. And in their hearts, turned back. What's he doing? Stephen here is detecting a pattern in scripture we see over and over again. And here it is. It's that people always resist the very thing that God sends to save them. Not just Moses and Joseph here. It's all through the Old Testament. We see uh, humanity rejects Noah, though Noah's the only one that can save him. He's got the only ticket of the one on the way out of town, right? Then there's Samson, the only one who can, who's strong enough to save his people from the Philistines, but they reject his strength and they hand him over to be delivered. It happens over and over again. Stephen's showing us the human heart resists the very thing God sends to save it. Now, what do you call a person, a human heart that does this? Well, Stephen actually puts a word on it, the vocabulary term. He tells you, he says, you are a stiff-necked person. You stiff-necked people. Now you say, well, that sounds pretty harsh, and it borders on that, but it's actually bold. I think, yes, it's risky because, yes, he's you know, putting his life on the line here with his words. He's speaking truth, the power, and all that. But there's something deeper here. I think that's fueling this, this fueling this term. Let's go back to this, this pattern Stephen discovers. The pattern is that the people's hearts resist God, resist the salvation by grace he wants to bring. Because if that's the case, 
and it is, then Stephen had to realize that that same pattern applied to him as well, that his own heart would have been guilty of the same thing. And at the same point, Stephen would have had to realize that he himself, as a Jewish person, had to see his own heart resisted God, resisted salvation by grace, and at some point he would have then had to stop resisting God and be converted to the Messiah. And of course he did, which is why he's preaching now. And you know what happens when you're converted to something, right? Well, you know, it's like if you, if you moved to Texas from somewhere else, like everybody in this room apparently, like basically coming here to Texas, right? And you swear that barbecue's actually better elsewhere. But then you get here and you realize, all right, they've been right all along. It's been better here. too easy. (laughs) You'd be able to see the difference between where you are now and where you came from. So Stephen's opening his heart to you here and showing you the same thing. He's showing you he has seen as well that what's been in his heart is what's in the human heart. And he calls that resistance, that pattern, being stiff-necked. It literally means in the Greek, a throat that can't swallow. A throat that chokes on something. He's saying here that the human condition as played out in the nation of Israel is to choke on the grace of God. Why is that? Why is it that people choke on the grace of God? Why do people, why do we choke on God's love? Why can't we get it down? One of the most, I think, life-changing, affirming things I, I do with my children is many nights I'll go and I'll begin to ask them a series of questions. And I'll ask them, why does daddy love you? And they'll say, well, because I'm your child. They know the right answer by now because I've told them. But they'll say, because I'm your child. I'll say, that's correct. Way to go. I said, did you ask to be my child? They'll say, no. I say, well, then that means that I, I loved you before you did ever anything good, before you could ever hit a ball or do a dance or make that great. And they'll say, right. And I'll say, well, then that also means I loved you before you did anything wrong, which means nothing can make me stop loving you, right? And they'll say, right. And they don't really get, they'll stop to stare at this point and say, man, what just happened there? You know, is that too good to be true? Well, what am I describing to them that they're being, they kind of like, but they're also kind of resisting. They're, they're hearing something described to them so great, their souls can hardly bear it. Think about this brilliant insight the Bible gives into your soul, the human soul today. First John 4 says, perfect love casts out fear. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say that perfect love casts out pride, although it certainly does. It doesn't say that that perfect love casts out racism or greed or lust or envy, although it certainly does. But the Bible is then making the claim that underneath all our stuff, all our selfishness is really a pool of fear. Christian psychologist, author Dr. David Benner, says the same thing in his little book. It's a great book on how to encounter the grace of God. His book is called Surrender to Love. And he says that underneath all our brokenness is really fear based on 1 John 4. And this, what, that makes, what makes it especially hard is that most fearful people 
don't think of themselves as being afraid. But think about it, he says, and he lists out, begins to list out several fear-based issues that he's counseled people through over the years. And he lists them out. He says, what about a person who has to have control? A controlling person. Maybe this is you, somebody you know or love. Why do you have to have control? Because you're afraid of what might happen if you don't stay in charge. You're not in control. Second, he said, what about the fear of failure? Now, this has been a driver in my life many times. I've looked up and realized that a lot of the compulsive overachievement has been a desire to run away, and I've been afraid of the word failure. The reason I work to stay on the, on the treadmill of accomplishment, jacked up the, incli- you know, the incline 10 at the level 20, is so that no one can possibly accuse me of doing anything wrong. What about third, a lurking sense of guilt? People feel like there's something just wrong with them. And guilt can seep into your life through abuse, through neglect, and you feel like maybe you deserve the bad things that happen to you. Some now, you're afraid, right, if you're, of, of knowing if you're really loved. And so people who feel guilty often struggle with compulsive behavior. They begin to branch out sexually or somewhere habitually. But because these are all self-centered motivations, in the end, they only increase the feeling of guilt, what about pride? He, he said, people who act in a way, they want to make the world revolve around them. Certainly no one that you know are in here. People who live in pride feel like they're afraid of being forgotten, of being ignored, of being a nobody, and so they throw tantrums to make sure people run to their rescue, run to take care of them, to be the center of attention, or they spend lavishly that people will notice them. Or they keep you on eggshells emotionally because they can't not be the one you pay attention to. Oh, but the Bible says the antidote to all these fears is perfect love and even more incredibly that God is perfect love. Dr. Binner goes on to say, the Christian God is unlike any God humans could ever imagine. The great distinctive of the love of the Christian God is that there are no strings attached to it. God simply loves humans. The Christian God of grace stands in stark contrast to the vindictive, whimsical, threatening, and often capricious gods of other religions. Only the Lord God unconditionally cherishes human beings. Only the Lord God forgives all our offenses and teaches us how to forgive ourselves. Only the Lord God provides everything he demands. Only the Lord God offers the life of his own son for the salvation of his people. The Lord God's persistent habit of relating to humans with grace is the best news the human race has ever received. Yeah. Now, that's good news. Yeah, I appreciate you better than the first service. They sort of stared at the screen at this point. So it's all right. But let's ask the question, like Stephen implies here, and Dr. Benner goes on to ask, why then wouldn't someone, like in the first service, want to receive it? All right, no, just kidding. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. All right, low blow, all right. All of us, making sure you're paying attention. He goes on to say, while one might expect humans to receive the news that God is unequivocally for us as good news, in reality, we do not. We have such an inborn tendency to run our own life and to pay our own way that unconditional love is both unbelievable and terrifying. In short, we want nothing of it. 
The reason for this, he says, is that such love demands surrender. The Christian God comes to us as holy other, so different from the gods of my imagination, so far beyond my control. Encountering such a God is terrifying because encountering perfect love is an invitation to abandon ego. A God of our own making would be much less terrifying, but such a God could not offer me what I most deeply need, release from my fears and healing of my brokenness. I ask you, well, then why can't we swallow this? Why can't we swallow this? Why can't we get this down? Well, Dr. Benner says it's because this kind of love is so large. It's so terrifying. It demands we surrender and trust it. And Stephen is saying that the same thing that people in his day, the people in our day, we resist the pattern of salvation that God brings because grace demands we surrender to it and give up our own life. Now, If that's true of just coming to God in the first place, and it is, what about the rest of our lives? What about all the little ways from the point, if you're you're a Christian, your conversion on, all the ways in which God still comes to move in your life and change you and heal you? I want to apply this and propose to you that in the same way that we used to resist God and his deliverer with a capital D, our tendency is still to resist him. And all the little deliverers with the lowercase d's, he sends us now. Let me ask you, what person are you constantly irritated with, perhaps? Maybe, maybe not in your community group, right? What about that situation that keeps coming up in your life, same pattern over and over again? Why do you constantly resist it? For years, as I mentioned, I struggled with workaholism, and if this is like you, it's like any other addiction. You function the same way. You insist, I don't have a problem, or I know it's a problem, but I've got it under control. I can handle it. Everybody back off, right? But you can't. Well, how does a person get free from any pattern, any kind of addiction? Well, you need someone sent into your life, and so God sent me a prophet, his very own prophet, Her name is Carrie, and Carrie, for years, persistently and thankfully pointed out I had a problem, but I resisted her, and I resisted her in a way that, you know, I almost, in a way, almost put her voice to death, and it almost cost me everything, and the reason that many of you men, in particular, will resist your wife, you'll resist her, and at the the best, just ignore her, at the worst, men threaten or want to beat them down. It's because they're hearing something from the heart of God. It's unconditional truth, (laughs) unconditional love, sorry, wrapped in a voice of truth, a voice of caution. And you know what, man, there's, (laughs) it's just hard to swallow sometimes. We hear the truth, we don't want it because it demands change, but at some point, you got to stop, stop resisting and trust that that voice, though you would never have chosen the form or the tone or the sound. just might be the voice of freedom coming to you. What about you? What voice do you try to shut out of your life? Do you know that it is really from God even though you'd never pick it? What voice are you like those ancient Jewish people putting to death? Let me submit to you, that voice is the unconditional love of God. And the reason we can't get it down is because we're afraid of what it costs us. But if God is love and all his ways are loving, perfectly loving, as even the uh, the Psalms insist, then what could surrendering to that love do other than bring you the freedom 
you've really wanted all along? What if it could free you from the very thing you've been killing yourself to avoid? What if truly saying yes and surrendering to unconditional love, stop resisting to that pattern? What if it could produce in you something unstoppable? And what if Stephen's life is all the proof you need to know that's true? Oh, because in the end, what did he do? Oh, he held it all together, the critique, the pattern, because number three here, he shows his quality, what's down on the inside. What do I mean? Well, by the time you get to the end of the passage, yeah, you know, you kind of know what's coming. Stephen's going to die for what he says, and he does, but before he dies, he does something. He sows a seed that changes the world. What was it? Well, in a way, yes, it was through his words here, because guess who's here in this moment listening to it? It's not the writer Luke of Acts. It's actually someone named Saul of Tarsus, later the Apostle Paul, who was there that day, who heard this sermon, and though it didn't immediately change him, it went into his heart like an electric shock and began to awaken him to the grace of God, to the pattern in his life that was he was experiencing. But it wasn't Stephen's words alone that passed and sunk into Paul. It was also something else that gave Stephen's words the undying power they still have. It was how Stephen suffered. It was how he suffered on trial, suffered when he was on trial for his life in the court of public accusation. Earlier in the passage, when he was about to go on trial, before the people who had the power to take his life, it says his face was like the face of an angel. Now, why would it say that? Why, why does it say his face doesn't just look content, you know, or serene or zen there? No. Why the face of an angel? Well, let me ask you, what do angels look at every day? What do angels see? Whose face? Oh, the face of God. And that's exactly what Stephen and who Stephen saw. At the end of his sermon, he concludes with this thunderbolt of acclaim. He says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. See, throughout the Bible, even in the Apostles' Creed, Christians have always said that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's a way of saying that Jesus has finished his work on the cross and he's ruling history no matter how it may look for us Stevens in our moments of trial and difficulty now but here Stephen's saying I see Jesus standing oh what does it mean it means he sees Jesus is there for him he's advocating to the father in his place right there he's seeing that Jesus loves him unconditionally with the perfect love that nothing can take away and when he sees that unconditional love that perfect and precious love cast out all fear cast out all fear and he can stand before the world there's this uh, great place in literature in the Two Towers where Captain Faramir, if you know the story, Tolkien's myth cycle, Captain Faramir, though he's previously, he's feared the words of his overbearing father. He now gives up his one chance to grab and take the one ring of power and that would turn him into the kind of twisted hero his father and community have always wanted. And when he passes on the chance to take up that one ring of power, which would have corrupted him, Little Samwise Gamgee says, Captain Faramir, you have shown your quality, sir, the very highest. 
But Faramir, when he hears this, he sees, he hears the source of the compliment. He knows that, Fer- that Gamgee, Sam Gamgee is a more nobler person than he is. And he says, oh, in response to praise from the praiseworthy is above all reward. So I love it. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all reward. See, Stephen is seeing Jesus standing for him. The praise from the praiseworthy is passing into his heart. He knows that's above any reward he could ever get. And let me tell you, if you put your reward in life, your meaning in life into anything in this life that can be taken away or changed, it will wreck you. It'll floor you. Do you know why you, why you get so down? Why I get so down? Because we think those people don't love me, right? We're afraid of what will happen. We're afraid of what our children will grow up to be and how that will reflect on us. Or we're afraid of what will happen if the bills don't get paid. And all those things are important. But the reason they throw us overboard into despair, the reason my face, your face, doesn't look like Stephen's face is because we're not looking at the face of Jesus, but at the face of fear represented by our culture or our divorce or our betrayal or the way that you know, the stock market's going or the trends in our culture, the face of whatever. Listen, you put your faith and trust in anything in this world. Oh, you set your soul up for catastrophe. But Stephen doesn't do it. He shows his quality. He sees perfect love. That perfect love casts out all fear. And then as he's dying, he's able to say the same words, therefore, as Jesus. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And the way Stephen suffered gave weight to his words. And though he didn't live to see it, it passed into the heart of his greatest critic, his greatest skeptic, Saul of Tarsus, who became in the end Christianity's greatest ambassador and thinker and writer and has changed the world we live in today. It's affected your life. See, the way Stephen suffered led Saul, Paul, to Jesus. Stephen turned his enemy into an ally through how he spoke through how he suffered, how he died. How about us today? Can we do the same? I hope we can. Let's just move right into worship, right into response, right into prayer as we ask ourselves the same question.